let's start there. I mean, forget anything that's happening in the world. Uh, you got a book out. How awesome is that? Uh, are we recording video or just audio? Both. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, in, in fact, I've got my copy here as well. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I've got my first yeah. book out. It's amazing. Um, yeah, it's very, very exciting. Quite a strange uh, experience. I'm just going to shut my window because you can hear the traffic. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, is that something you always wanted to do or what? Because I, I feel like as as DJ, producer, creative type people, I think it's always kind of the dream, isn't it? Is to that sort of autobiographical type thing. Yeah, for me, it was uh, writing was a replacement for production, really when my production career kind of hit a point where I realized I wasn't going to be able to ever turn it into like a proper career. Um, yeah. I kind of channeled that creative drive into writing. So for me, it's just an alternative to that really. At, at what point was that? So, so I, I'll, I'll say now as well, I'm the world's uh, most useless reader. I have read many, many books and enjoy reading. I just don't seem to ever find or make the time to, to get it to happen. Um, so I've read about 30 pages of your book so far. <laughs> um, and I've seen people have read it in, in the first day, uh, which I'm quite jealous of. And read the whole thing in a day. You've got to be quite impressed with that, haven't you? Do you know what I mean? Mm. Fair play. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I I'm going to apologise in advance now because there may be questions that are probably answered by the book, um, but I, I guess one of the most poignant things for me in probably the first five or six pages is the way you sort of describe your unsuccess as a DJ, but equally I'm reading it thinking. Am I unsuccessful? Did I did I also fail because I'm relating so much to the words you're you're writing? Well, it's interesting. Writing that book has made me completely reappraise what I think success is. And okay. I think by the end of the book, if I've done my job properly, the reader will be have reached the same point as me to understand that success really isn't about playing a cream every week or flying around the world. Success as a DJ. It's about just getting that kind of jubilation you get when you're DJing. It's just yeah, that. It's yeah. just the joy of music, of sharing music and dancing with your friends. That's the success. That's the real, that's the gem that you look for, that you find, that you treasure. And that for, you know, years later, you look back on. It's not any earnings. I mean, it would be lovely to have been a very successful DJ and to earn lots of money. Do you know what I mean? But I think for me, that book has, yeah, it's about looking at success and reevaluating what success really is. Yeah, that's interesting because I always, I always sort of saw myself as uh, on the brink of success. I think I always kind of felt like I was, I was, you know. And I think we're probably all, aren't we? We're all, you know, two or three gigs away from that big one. We're always, uh, and it's kind of weird because, it, again, interesting that you mentioned in the first few pages uh, that you you, you weren't. Uh, heading towards Ministry of Sound or Space Ibiza uh, and weirdly I had residencies in both of those clubs 
God, see, there you go. So you're clearly a few tiers above me in the DJ pyramid. Do you know what I mean? But I don't. But I don't think I am. I think I just had a slightly different path. And I guess maybe that's you know, again, where we all draw our own different versions of what success is. Maybe. Um, yeah. But yeah, it did kind of it, it it threw me a bit because I was like, oh, hang on, no, I am that. No, no, I'm not. No, yes, I am. And, yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. Well, I, I think it was uh, for me. I, I kind of and I've I've mentioned this before in in interviews, podcasts, everything. I think it was around 2014 where I started sort of getting a bit depressed about the whole industry and the way that music itself was changing um and it had become somewhat formulaic and uh it it had if you remember 2013 14 was the explosion of uh what they still continue to call deep house um which was neither deep nor house but I, that kind of depressed me because it was just so formulaic and i uh I, I guess you'd probably witnessed similar with Tech House where, you know, or, or probably currently witnessing similar with Tech House and the explosion of Tech House in, in clubs and festivals that it's neither tech nor house really. Um, and uh, yeah, so for me in 2014, I sort of realised, I think I'm just too old and too ugly to really ever become a, a superstar DJ, which I think we all kind of secretly dreamt of becoming um and but actually for me that was one of the most liberating moments in my career i think because that was that was the moment actually i kind of uh I, I stopped producing for labels and i started producing just because i enjoyed it and and that's kind of and that's when i then signed to much bigger labels um and it all kind of came full circle i suppose it's um kind of blessing in there isn't there i think so yeah yeah um and yeah, and I, I just, I, I guess I just stopped caring, really. Yeah. Have you found that that's been similar with your book? I don't. I suppose it's probably far too early to even make that prediction, really. But I, I feel like it feels like perhaps you may get a second wind now because people will want you because of the book. Oh, right. Okay. I don't know, man. We're coming out of this pandemic. There's going to be a lot of hungry DJs. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. A lot yeah. of hungry DJs and not a lot of work. I'm not sure there's going to be a lot of call for a 50-year-old bitter old man. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like I say in the book, I'm always ready. I've got my USBs. You know what I mean? Give yeah, me a strong yeah. copy. I'm on it. I'll, you know. Yeah, yeah. That would be Have nice. You... But I'm, I think I'm resigned to a, a life, um, a more sedate life, really, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 and yeah, and same here. I think, I think I was perhaps never really cut out for the uh, the whole party life type thing. Not for any uh, long period of time. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of a, I don't know, I don't know. Um, so, how do you define your job now? Then, what do you? So, if somebody, uh, you know, if you're filling in a visa application or something like that, what what do you put down now? Uh, I'm a music writer. Okay, that's my job. Um, I'm not a music journalist. I'm not trained. I'm not an investigative journalist. I just write about yeah. music, and I write for magazines and websites. And I'm now writing books as well. That's what it, I do. 
is journalism something you want to do? Because I, I and again, forgive me if I'm if I'm wrong, but to my understanding is there is a, a huge difference between a journalist and a writer. Yeah, I would definitely make that distinction. I'm not professionally trained. I don't know how oh. to conduct a piece of investigative journalism and make sure that I don't contaminate evidence, those kind of things. You know yeah, what I mean? I think, yeah. there's, uh, I think there's space for people like me who would just write about something that they love and they know about and they've lived. Um, I particularly want to get into journalism. I'm quite happy where I am at the moment. Yeah, um, yeah. Sometimes, occasionally, some of my written work strays into that territory, but I'm very aware of what my limitations are. Um, yeah. You know, there's been lots of stuff in dance music about sexual abuse and sexual assault, particularly over the last year, particularly with Murillo. And, you know, I think I wrote about it a little, but I'm not an investigative journalist. I'm not about to start yeah. chasing um, leads. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. think there are professionals who are well qualified to do that kind of thing. And I think yeah. someone like me needs to be very aware of what the, the boundaries are. Do you know what I mean? I'm a music writer, man. You know, I'm quite happy with that. Yeah, uh, yeah, because I, I think that was probably one of the things that went through my head this morning when I was thinking about things to sort of talk about with you. And uh, one of the topics was because I, I'm, I know that you've written some pieces uh, that may or may not be seen as somewhat controversial, depending on who yeah. you are, I suppose. Uh, one of which was the Spotify thing that happened was it last year the spotify ceo came out and was basically telling people to make more music if you want to earn more money make more music and and that was basically all content 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 um and i know you'd written a, a couple of pieces about that am i right i think you yeah, don't really yeah. yeah um and, I, and i'm fairly sure it in the same vein, probably around the same time, actually, you'd written about Eric Murillo uh, and his what was imminent due uh, court case and things. Um, is that not something that appeals to you to start writing about those things or is it purely the creative side that you'd rather write? I enjoy creative and I enjoy fun and interesting stuff. I enjoy just really digging into music and telling stories and anecdotes and finding the funny or finding the loveliness in something. Do you know what I mean? I'm very much yeah, a, yeah. kind of a, almost like a Disney dance music kind of writer. Do you know what I mean? I just like <laughs> everything to be lovely. And I mean, I've, had a, I've written about playgraves a lot because I felt very strongly about playgraves and I felt like I didn't need to be an investigative journalist to still write competently about it. I thought I could still observe enough and put together a coherent argument. So I'm quite happy to write about stuff like that, that perhaps is a bit more controversial. So I feel more confident about it. I thought, you know, it was quite easy to establish what was going on. There are, there's enough news sources so you can see what's happening in countries where plague raves are happening with regard to the infection rates and stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. A professional journalist to write a good piece about a plague rave. So I'm happy enough to, you know, I just know my boundaries. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, and then one of the other things I noticed in the first couple of pages as well, in fact, probably the first page, is you give thanks to Colin Dale. Uh, oh, Colin. Who... Uh, I have to say is just uh, one of the most beautiful humans that ever lived uh and it was nice to see his name because I, I, oddly enough and and i felt it it sort of it came full circle really uh i first started talking to colin uh, late 90s early noughties 
and uh, he, I had sent him some mixtapes that I'd done and he came back with some advice saying uh, something along the lines of, you know, basically pick a genre and stick to it uh, because these were my early mixtapes where I was just wanting to sort of show reel everything. And uh, uh, he uh, he actually sent me a couple of tracks by a guy called Harold Heath. Uh, so that was my introduction to your music was through Colin. And uh, so... Yeah, and it was just really weird to see his name getting thanked. And in my head, that was that had come full circle that he introduced me to you, and then you were thanking him in a book. Um, yeah, we're talking about it. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful thing, man. Yeah, Colin's a great guy, and he's kind of been there in the background in my career, you know, a couple of times throughout the years. He pops up again later in the book. Um, I did a stint right. for his DJ agency at some point. So yeah, he's a he's a great guy, Colin. Yeah, absolute don of the scene. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it was probably his mutant disco stuff that that got me sort of hooked into that area of dance music in the first place. Really. Um, yeah, and and then uh, you talk about uh, the Eastern European gigs being for those and and again this is where i kind of struggled where i thought oh am i am i unsuccessful or successful and and i can still not work it out because uh the eastern european gigs were definitely my bread and butter for a good few years um and uh yeah it was just interesting to see you mention that because i hadn't realized you'd been doing that same circuit and actually it was probably around a similar time um, so I'm surprised our pals didn't cross there. The late noughties, I guess, and then the early 2010s. Right, um, okay. And, you know, it was uh, Sofia and Varna in Bulgaria and the Czech Republic, places like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of the Tech House DJs, uh, you know, regularly were all over kind of Croatia and all that kind of area of uh, Eastern Europe, Central Europe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're from Brighton, aren't you? Are you born and bred Brighton? No, I was actually, I was brought up in Bury St Edmunds in Suffolk, but we moved here. Okay. I moved to London for a, a later time, and then we moved here maybe 15, 16 years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, we've been All in right. Brighton for about 15 years, I think. Right. And that's you and your wife, Annie, is it? Yeah. And got you've a, got a son as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, How do you find the Brighton scene then? Because... I've only ever been there a couple of times um, and I have mixed reviews. Brighton's great, man. It's got a lot of venues. It caters to every taste. So mm. uh, and obviously it caters to a lot of, uh, you know, sad nights and hen parties. Yeah. And I guess people like us probably wouldn't really like the music that goes down at venues like that. But it just means you don't go there. Do you know what I mean? There's, yeah, uh, yeah. there's quality venues and there's quality little nights and that. You know, as a 50-year-old man, I'm not going out clubbing every weekend, but if you want it, it's here, do you know what I mean? Yeah, there's always yeah. good life in Brighton as well, always good life stuff going on. I love it, man, it's brilliant. Yeah, I think one of my, my first ventures into Brighton was, uh, <laughs> it was uh, for uh, Jason Fats, uh, and he was launching a, cl a designer clothes brand i think or a suit company or something like that and i'd been invited to go there and 
uh, Phil and Paul Hartnell Orbital were were playing there as well, as was I think Fatboy Slim and a few other big names. And it was in the uh, Engineering Museum, I think. Right. Okay. Is that is that a thing in Brighton? An Engineering Museum. Place it, but that doesn't mean that uh, it doesn't exist. <laughs> and I remember you walk in and uh, maybe it wasn't a museum. I'm sure it was a museum. It, when you walk into it, there's a great big steam engine type thing sort of sunk into the floor right in front of you. It, it looked like it wasn't supposed to be like a nightclub venue. You know, it was uh, more of a museum than a nightclub, I think. But um, yeah, I, so uh, I, I went to that event and uh booked a hotel or b&b or whatever that i thought was down the road and uh it turned out to be uh, a place called east worthing <laughs> which is which which was not a walk and this was like a january as well so it was bitterly cold and uh yeah and i th- i thought oh i'll get a nice b&b on the seafront that would be nice uh thinking that'd be lovely in the morning after you know i'll be able to go for a little walk along the beach and uh i, I got to uh i'm sure it was east worthing um i got there at probably seven or eight in the evening so it was dark and sort of just checked in and then stepped out the place and this was a time where google maps wasn't really a thing and you kind of had to roughly and so i looked up on the map and then it, it was as i sort of checked in and sat down on the bed and realized I'm nowhere near the centre of Brighton. Um, so, yeah. So I ended up having to go to East Worthing train station and sort of find it in the dark on my own. Uh, and there were a, a group of young lads who were somewhat enthusiastic about life uh, approaching me, asking me for... And I'm and it was a shirt, like a tux job as well, the, the event. So I'm walking through East Worthing on my own uh wearing a tuxedo you know or fancy suit or whatever uh yeah it was not my uh favorite moment in life <laughs> and these young lads just grilling me all the way to the train station <laughs> i hope that hasn't colored your whole um idea of brighton because it's not always like that <laughs> no no not at all no it was uh I, I just knew it was one of those things where i screwed up in in booking the uh the b&b um yeah it was uh it's not my favourite moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, h- how do you even go about writing a book? I found it quite easy. I quite like it. I'm quite... Uh, I don't know, man. I just need to have something to do. Do you know what I mean? Like, I used to produce obsessively when I was a producer. I produced a yeah. lot of stuff. Uh, and so when I stopped doing that, I kind of didn't... I need something to do with my hands. Do you know what I mean? So, for yeah. me... Quite easy. I just it just happens. I've learned that uh, the trick is not to wait for inspiration to come, or wait for an idea, or wait for a phrase. Don't wait for anything. You have to start because it actually only comes when you're in the mm. mode, kind of when you're typing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, just uh, I had a few anecdotes. I thought oh, this could be a book if I put it together. So I I wrote a big plan on a big piece of A4 paper of what the chapters were going to be and the stages I was going to go through. And then once you've done that, you just have to type a lot of words, really. And I typed too many words, and I ended up having to cut a load out. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got about 40,000 
words, which is maybe a third of a book, uh, which I thought would be, it'd be brilliant. I'll just cut them out and they'll all be the basis for loads of columns and articles yes. and stuff. Whereas in fact, they're all just awful. Uh, oh, right. That, that's why they didn't make the cut because they're bad words. Do you know what I mean? I've just yeah, got all yeah. these full of bad words that I'm never going to use again. I occasionally open them up and wistfully look for something that I might be able to pillage and use, but yeah, they're all bad words. So yeah, I found I found it quite easy. I'm looking forward to writing the next one because it's just uh, an enjoyable. Oh, okay. You've, you've you've oh, you're already doing a next one. I've got two ideas on the boil, um, with a third maybe. So yeah. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah, I like writing books. It's good. It suits me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's great because uh, I mean, yeah, I guess it's similar to music production in many ways. In in that, you know, as you say, you've just got to sort of force yourself to to do it. And I and I feel similarly with music production, you you kind of need the idea, obviously, in the first place. But once you've got that idea, you then need to sort of set it in stone and go for it because you can't just sit there with a blank canvas, going, "Oh, an idea will come to me eventually." You know, you you need to just. Uh, try new ideas and try new things and just put things together and work out those combinations that may or may not work and then eventually you get to a point where you think actually I've got the foundations of something here and 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 now I've set the goals and and can get through that um yeah definitely. I think that for me the process of production often I had a an idea of a feel a feel for a song do you know what I mean or a certain combination of sounds or not uh, a concept but I didn't have a clear idea of what the riff was going to sound like and that comes yeah. from the actual act of getting involved and doing the thing so I think there's that kind of similarity definitely man uh, the creative act being the inspiration because you can wait for ages for inspiration yeah. but you might wait your entire life it might never come do you know what I mean so yeah, yeah you just got to crack on in, you know, with, with both those, those things are you, are you classically trained musically I mean Ah, not at all, man. I've played the guitar for years just as a hobby, so I know right. what chords are, and I like. Yeah, I know lots of jazz chords. I, I like all those kind of odd-sounding chords. Yeah, but that's as far as my music knowledge goes. Really. Okay. Because uh, you you used to, you still do teach music tech, don't you? No, I, I took a course and I qualified with a um, as a music tech teacher, but by the time I'd finished yeah. the course. I found I really didn't like teaching, and <laughs> it quite—it's <laughs> quite stressful and quite a thankless task, really. These kids—they—they they become so important to you, but you realise at the end of the year that you mean nothing to them. You're just another teacher that they can't bother <laughs> to talk to anymore. And I found it quite a thankless task, um, and also it's quite stressful. And I think when the Tories are in power, it's not a great time to be a teacher. It's substantial underfunding. Yeah, yeah. In taking the teaching qualification, I had to write lots of essays. Right. And that's when I realised that I was just loving writing. I was producing okay. these beautifully written, overlong essays about teaching as part of my coursework. And I, that was yeah. the part I really enjoyed. And that's what got me into uh, thinking I could make uh, a living out of writing. Because obviously right. you find that thing that you enjoy doing. If you enjoy yeah. doing it, you can earn from it. And, you know, you succeed. Yeah, and I, I, I've, I've always sort of said to people, because a lot of people always ask me, you know, should should we go to uh, you know university to learn music or music production or anything like that? And I've always sort of said that that I think university and and learning courses of any sort really are more valuable than they're ever really given credit for because as you start to sort of hone in on a specific set of skills, you know, you tend to find something that you love within that. Then. Um, 
so you know I've, I've always sort of used engineering as an example where you know you you may be good at something like maths or science or whatever in in secondary school and then by the time you get to university and you're doing something like engineering you're going to have certain modules that may be in i don't know electronics or maths or physics or acoustics or you know any of these sorts of things and that's when you start to find oh actually i really like this bit and that's when you start finding a, a, a direction in life um, so I guess it's kind of similar with yourself where actually by doing the, the teaching course, you not only learned that teaching maybe wasn't for you, but but actually that writing was. Yeah. I mean, ironically, I was a good teacher. I, I won a little award for my uh, teaching methods and my right. teaching resources I, I made. But I just didn't enjoy it. I found it quite stressful. It's very difficult. So it was, Every class is full of... Uh, individuals and they all need an individual approach there's not one yeah, thing you can yeah. say to a group of 20 kids that they'll all get do you know what i mean yeah yeah I especially when it comes to teaching a creative subject as well yeah I, I, I guess my experience was colored by the fact i was working with uh kids who hadn't had much educational success elsewhere so there's quite a lot of undiagnosed right. um adhd and dyslexia yeah. few disabilities there were some language issues there were some people with opposition just an oppositional disorder yeah. There was a guy who'd come from a war zone. There was a guy who was sleeping rough. There was a guy who was drinking a lot. Another guy who was taking heroin. There's all these kind of extra layer of social problems that teachers are just yeah. expecting to deal with. Yeah. And yeah, it did kind of colour my whole experience of the thing. Um, but like you say, I got a lot out of it. I learned, I was kind of rediscovered my ability to write. And it was, uh, it's quite a joy. It's been quite a, a lifesaver to me, really. And I think for yeah. other people, I, mean, I wouldn't say you need to go to university or do a course to make music particularly, but I think any education that you can do, it's always a good thing, man. Education's great. Learning yeah. stuff is great. It helps other parts of your life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it does. It's uh, it's one of those things that I think it has unfortunately become all about tick boxes over the years, and it's all about... You know, you need X grade to achieve Y in life. And, and I think people forget that actually in and amongst all of that, there's a loads of fun that can be had and, and loads of different directions you can go with with all of these things as well. Um, so were you looking at being a secondary school teacher by the sounds of it? Or? No, I, wanted, I just wanted to teach music technology. So I was doing okay. uh, a placement uh, one day a week in a local music college uh, and that's okay. what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be in a school. I wanted to be in a college just dedicated yeah. to Okay, that yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, because I was going to say, is it from from what you first said, I thought maybe it was secondary school and then thought, I mean, that's my idea of absolute hell, basically, is uh, yeah. teaching a secondary school. And I think, you know, the people who do it, more fair play to them, do you know what I mean? Cause Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think you have to be a certain kind of a person and I'm not that kind of person. I just don't like yeah, people. Yeah, me neither. Simple as that. <laughs> yeah i think i think you have to be jack of all trades as well don't you and 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 you shouldn't be you've got to be rock solid you've got to be so many things you know yeah it's, it's not for me. Fair yeah. yeah 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 so can you tell us anything about oh, uh the second or third book what's what's the because i mean <sighs> Essentially, your first book is, I guess, autobiographical. Can you call it autobiographical? Yeah, definitely. It's things that happened to me that I remembered. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I guess is an autobiography, isn't it? Um, 
but I'm guessing, uh, or, or is it? I don't know. You tell me. Is it? Is it another autobiography? Can you do that? Can you? No, I think I've probably rinsed out this particular part of my life. Yeah, I was toying with the idea of writing a book about what it was like being a, a trainee teacher for two years because that is full of quite a lot of funny okay. stories. Yeah, um, quite niche. Uh, but no, mm. so I've got another couple of things that I'm looking at doing. Um, there's one which would be a straight up history of a certain little aspect of dance music, which I'm considering doing. It'd be quite dry, but I think it's a little area that needs to be looked at. And then another one, I've been thinking about just writing a book about dance music genres, just because I love uh, genres and subgenres. I love the way Oof. things continually splinter and develop and are redefined. And then people yeah. say, that's not this, that's this. And we all feel so strongly about those genres. They, you know, they yeah. really live with us. They're really real to us and important to us. So I think there's, I could write about that. So I'm, that's probably the direction I'm going in. Yeah, that sounds dangerous. Uh, <laughs> having, <laughs> because uh, I think uh, having just seen comment threads on social media, when somebody mentions a genre name, it just becomes this this wild, rabid, zombie apocalypse of comments. Absolutely, and I think that's interesting in itself. I think the fact that we're so attached to or we're so revolted by certain genres, I think that's quite interesting. I think. Yeah, that's true. I've never really thought of that, but I suppose it is a... It's a how we define ourselves and define what we are and what we're not you know i mean genres are so important but also i love them in them in themselves i love that people invent a new genre i love it when you can define a new genre so that's that i just that, that whole process really appeals to me i like lists track lists compilations filing stuff do you know what i mean yeah i love all that yeah, <laughs> yeah it's that's interesting i'm not honestly i've never really given it too much thought and i've always sort of steered clear but in, in fact i think evidenced by my first words about Colin Dale and and the fact that you know my my mixtapes were a vast showreel of everything I love you know um and um and so I think because of that I, I think I've always kind of steered clear of the whole genre this is or that that isn't or whatever and 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 honestly when people have asked me you know what sort of music do you write I've always just gone oh, electronic I just I I can't really define it any better than that it's just electronic um and uh but i guess for a lot of people it's almost like a a sense of belonging and a sense of tribalism in there in 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 i own this genre because this genre is mine and 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 i know what's right and what's wrong within this genre um and it, it, it's all it almost becomes to sort of a a religious aspect uh which is quite scary now you've said it. I love it. And you're right. It does become extremely important to people. And people become very uh, angry when people two years later start reinterpreting the genre. And suddenly it's like, well, that's not what the genre is. This is the true classic. Do you know what I yeah. mean? And all that kind yeah. of drawing of lines. I just think it's fascinating, man. I love the way it operates. I just think it yeah. says a lot. I'm not quite sure what it says yet because I've not written the book. But I think it says a lot <laughs> about us. I think it does, and and I wonder if that's is that a British thing? Do you think, or do you think it's all the world around? I think it's. Uh, I think certainly Western countries like yeah. categorising stuff, definitely. Yeah, the Western intellectual 
tradition certainly likes making lists. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, and, and cataloging things. I I guess. I mean, clearly, I, I'm only seeing it from a British perspective, being British. But I I, I feel like um, British people don't cope very well with change and uh they also as a whole tend to shun things that become successful beyond their own experience and reality um so i think you know to to give an example from a genre perspective using the word progressive house because that's kind of one of the things i always sat under was the, the the branch of progressive house until when was it 2010 11 and we had people like swedish house mafia and all of a sudden the word progressive house became like a swear word and and in britain especially that's exactly uh, the kind of thing that i find absolutely fascinating the journey that word went on yeah how it's just warped over the years to yeah. become the antithesis of what it originally was and it happens again and again i think it's a fascinating process and i also love the fact that there was very little that was progressive about progressive house initially do you know what i mean it's just do you think yeah i think it's really i think it's odd when people start labeling their music progressive or intelligent as though other music is somehow not quite as <laughs> or intelligent. Yeah, well i think it's really interesting positioning that's um, interesting that you see it that way because i i i felt like it it should have perhaps always been called progress house because it was about the progress it made within the constraints of its time frame within the tune itself it went yeah. on a, a journey kind of thing you yeah oh, that's so the i, I and i always I, I and and i've never really thought about this until now but i, I think as a kid it was you know the progress was the introduction of a new hi-hat that yeah. that made you go oh hello what's that yeah. and then that that you know it just tickles your ears and then and then maybe the introduction of of a new pad sound came in and you oh oh we've lifted up a notch and because progressive house now means a certain set of musical tropes certain types of percussion yeah percussion, certain types of synth sounds but it's not this type of drum patterning because that's techno do you know what i mean it's a yeah. certain set yeah. of musical tropes I think the idea of it being progress house, that's quite interesting, of things that happen in a track rather than it just being a track where it just loops kind of thing. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and, and that was always my interpretation of progressive house was yeah. it was something that progressed over time and generally progressive house tracks at the time were sort of, you know, nine minutes long or whatever and, 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 and much like prog rock. And I always felt that, you know, prog rock for me was always about the, the progress of the track. It was about, that climactic last two three minutes of the track that 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 it progressed as a journey to um, wow well, yeah i never really thought of it like that either i kind of just thought of it more as yeah i don't even know what i thought of it. i just thought progressive as a prefix that just slowly or quite quickly came to delineate certain like i say musical tropes lots yeah. of layers of percussion not techno not house somewhere in the middle yeah you do a whole yeah. chapter on the word progressive, man. Yeah, yeah, there we go. I've just given you a chapter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it, but it is interesting the way I think 
British culture in particular really sort of we we both invent and destroy things uh, and in fact in one of these podcasts I was talking to a dubstep DJ called Funkcase and he we talked about the fact that really Britain and British culture invented dubstep and it, it had you know roots from reggae and dub and dancehall and and all of these things um, and for me having you know been born and bred in Wales and spent a lot of time in Bristol and, and seen the sort of slow evolution of these things develop and so Britain really dubstep to me is a hugely British creation it's all to me it was uh, and still is representative of all the good things about Britishness is the the cultural diversities and the the mishmash of of cultures that Britain has to offer and it all kind of came together in this melting pot in a few sort of underground clubs in Bristol and London and that to me was the birth of dubstep and then of course America came along and went you know here's some muck dubstep and uh it, you know they they capitalized on it time and time and time again and the moment any of these British artists kind of started gaining any kind of notoriety or success the whole of Britain just went no nope, we're done with dubstep now that's it bye and we're off to deep house or whatever it was and to reinvent something else sullied, wasn't it, by uh, EDM and kind of uh, that American take on it and yeah yeah but but i think but again and i and i as much as i i think what i've just said may have come out as an anti-american thing and that america destroyed it but honestly my issue was that britain created something and then didn't cherish it and just and 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 to me it was a british issue not an american issue because america will always americanize things that's well it's america that's what america does um Whereas Britain seems to invent these things and then just quickly go, nope, bored of that now, and they move on to something else. And they, I think it's this whole sort of stiff upper lip of we don't like people to be successful too much. We're okay with a little bit of success. You're allowed that, but don't get too successful or we'll suddenly hate you. Uh, yeah, we do have a strange relationship with success. I think that is true. I think there is a... An, undescribable level of success beyond which you won't know but if you go past it then yeah the british public might not like you and it's hard to yeah know that it, it's such a thin line such a thin line uh, which i think is 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 perhaps one of the appealing things about your book is that you know it's a self-reflecting but equally self-mocking to an extent uh look back on on what didn't happen as much as what did happen um and i think that to me is is another great british trait that we have is is the ability to look back at something something that perhaps wasn't a great success but we look back at that with more fondness than we do looking back at something that was a success the british love an underdog don't they do, you know they, do. they really do uh and it, 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 it who sorry eddie, eddie the eagle the oh yeah 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 rubbish, man. absolutely rubbish britain loved him yeah yeah there's a there's a film about him isn't there i think there is yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's on my watch list 
Yeah, uh, apparently, I'm, I'm sure I heard someone talking about it a couple of years ago, saying that it's an astoundingly good film. Um, so yeah, so it's it's on my watch list there somewhere. Uh, weirdly, in the last twenty four forty eight hours, um, there's uh, so I'm into my my craft beers, and um, there's a, a company in Manchester called Cloudwater, and um, they do by far the greatest beers I've ever tasted and they have uh, there's always been this thing in the craft beer world and as much as I like my craft beers I do not consider myself in any way shape or form an expert on craft beers I just know that I like a lot of different unique tasting beers Um, but I'm also very aware that within that world there's a huge amount of snobbery going on and uh, again they sort of shun the success of people and and i don't know perhaps rightly or wrongly but but uh it was announced the other day that cloudwater have uh started supplying tesco with some of their craft beer and the whole craft beer world has been up in arms about this thing and how dare they now start shipping to tesco uh, and what's what what makes it extra strange is that they seem to be a hugely ethical company and i think maybe this is where it's rubbed people the wrong way rightly or wrongly but uh you know they've always sort of claimed that they try to be as ethical as possible and uh so they've started launching some beers that will be through tesco but they've given uh brew dog a huge brewer uh the recipe to brew it so they're not actually brewing it themselves they're giving the recipe to brew dog to get it brewed there and then that's going to tesco so that they don't muddy their own supply i guess and then but they're launching this with a a, a four pack of beer which are four different collaborations with four different small uh minority run uh uh brewing companies so there is uh i think i i forget which one's which but i know for example there's an uh, uh one called queer brewing which is clearly lgbtq run company and uh there's another one that is uh, uh a, i think is uh a black owned minority and it's to do with anyway they're basically trying to be good and they're trying to say here's these four beers that are from brewers that would have not otherwise been able to gain a platform in somewhere like tesco so we're doing a good thing in collaborating with a recipe and getting their name and they get the profit and we're not making any profit from this and neither are brew dog we're doing it for the good of others and those four independent brewers get all the money and yet somehow that's been seen as this terrible thing um and the whole world has just gone crazy in the in the world of craft beer and it just seems like just such a typically british reaction to uh, a small sniff of success I wonder if it's a typically social media driven reaction. It could be. It seems to me social media provides the the structure for us to become really angry at something and then adopt a really polarised position about it. It seems that it encourages 
us to adopt polarized positions and provides the structure for us to then become more rooted in those positions and to become really angry about it and it feeds us with a little bit of serotonin or whatever drug it is that you get from a like or an engagement yeah encouraging us to repeat that kind of behavior so maybe it is a british thing but maybe it's also just that terrible modern malaise of the way social media unfortunately brings out the worst in us in terms of our narcissism and our narcissism and our neediness and our i don't know our need to be part of a tribe and to be right about things yeah that's depressing isn't it <laughs> how how do we how do we get past that because i like social media for being social i i, I you know really yeah and i i think social media as a concept is fantastic and i don't know how we sort of you know i think we as a society need to start changing something I think, I'll tell you what I think, if you want to know, I interrupted you then, but that's because I've kind of got an idea. I think oh, that what good. the first thing you need is that everyone who uses any social media platform should be required to register with like, you know, some kind of proof of ID. You shouldn't be able to hide behind a false uh, identity and then be able to abuse people because people can literally, I could follow you on Twitter now with a false account and abuse you until I get blocked and then start another one. And I could do that for the rest of my life until you die. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And as long as I keep within the law, I can get away with that. And so much of the terribleness of social media, I think, is down to the fact that people are kind of hiding behind, you know, an online avatar or an online identity. So first thing, I think you shouldn't be able to go on there and do that. I think it's crazy. And I also think that they have, the media platforms have a responsibility in the same way that the BBC do to not, have certain stuff on their site there are certain ideas in society that just aren't okay we don't have them on the bbc because they're not okay but you seem to be able to have them on youtube or facebook and that's nonsense so i think we kind of jumped into this social media thing without giving a thought to regulation and now they've become so powerful they're above regulation and they need to be regulated mm. i know it sounds really boring and a bit uh reactionary but we just went in a bit too quick and we can see the problems, you know, in the rise in anxiety in young people, for example, related mm. to social media. We can see that we haven't quite got it right. Social media is brilliant. It's really good fun. I love it. But it needs to be regulated and people need to be accountable for what they do online. And currently they don't have to be. And that's what I think about social media. I like it. I like <laughs> it. I think I like it. I And I want to agree with you, but there's a part of me that, also thinks that we'd need to start even higher up than that and start looking into things like privacy laws because so for example the whole uh is it parlor uh that to sign up to that apparent or, or so there were two different types of accounts you could have if i could be wrong on this i oddly enough didn't have a parlor account um hang on was it you it was you that did wasn't it yeah you're the one friend i've seen post saying that you you logged in and looked at it okay so maybe you can tell me if i'm right or wrong here my understanding was that you had two different types of accounts one of which you needed a social security number to basically become a verified human being um and 
the other type of account was just a, a free for all for anybody. Is that right? Uh, I didn't have to get give them any proof of who I was. I just no. started up an email. But my it. understanding was, if you wanted to be a, a a verified, bona fide human being, you had to be basically provide them with your social security number or or whatever. Not, and not at all in the sign up, I did not notice okay. that at all. And I right. remember, and I can post on there if I wanted to. Um, so I'm not sure that's strictly true. Right. No. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a shame because I actually thought that was quite a nice idea. Was that essentially? So then you could you could basically have your so like we have with Facebook now. We have you know we could uh, I can change my post to be friends only or friends of friends or public or whatever. Uh, my understanding, apparently wrongly, was that you could basically have your posts visible to uh, only verified bona fide humans who had. You can. I've not looked into that side of it very much, but I okay. think I find it hard to believe because of the level of extreme racism, transphobia, whatever, that those people are posting, having given their social security details. We're talking they... about we're talking about the same group of people, or I'll say an overlap of the same group of people who were publicly posting pictures of themselves rioting in the Capitol Hill. Uh, yeah, also, you know, British people as well being terribly racist, and I find it hard to believe they would be doing that in a way that would enable them to be seen, because a lot of those posts, you, you just lose your job if you worked in public yeah. service and you yeah. went online saying that you thought Muslims were filthy or whatever, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I find it hard to believe that they're doing anything like that at all. It seems to me you can just sign up and be as as horrific as you want yeah that's well that's depressing then because <laughs> i thought i and again i have like I, i've not looked at i i knew it was a place for racists to circle jerk each other i don't i don't know i don't really know much about it other than that it was just a, Twitter. a, a, a it, my understanding was that it was essentially for uh the people that call us snowflakes were at the same time being offended that they weren't allowed to be racist in public and therefore created this social media platform that was for people to call everyone else snowflakes whilst hiding behind their computer. Yeah, it's not the best use of technology that humans <laughs> have come up with. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, maybe not. Great things, but that that isn't one of them. It's... I, so I, I had a curiosity because I don't think I've ever seen. I, I've I, I saw you post once or twice, and and it was around the sort of January sixth riots and everything. I think sometime after that, yeah, I'd, I'd seen that you posted something about Parla that you'd logged in or something. Um, why did you even have an account? What was that about? I started an account because I was interested in how QAnon ideas were infiltrating dance music. How some DJs oh. started talking about QAnon. And I thought, I'll have a look on Parlour and see if anything's going on there. So I just started an account under a false name. Yeah. And then would occasionally go on there and have a look around. Um, it wasn't actually that useful. Uh, oh. Yeah. I, well, I think people are hiding who they are. I don't think anyone's on there with their real name because they know what they're saying is disgraceful. You know what I mean? I think it's yeah. not meant. Oh, no, that's not true. There are some people on there with their real names. People like Katie Hopkins 
oh, and Tom God. Robinson, they're on there with their real names. Um, but certainly I didn't find any uh, DJs that I knew or producers that I knew. Oh, so you were looking You were looking for DJs and producers. I was interested to were, see how yeah. that Chiron thing was coming into Britain and coming into yeah. the dance community. And I didn't, back to I, what we're about investigative journalism. I'm not an investigative journalist. <laughs> but but you seem to be doing that. a lot of it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm interested in that. I think the way that idea, those ideas have travelled, particularly into our particular corner of culture, uh, is quite interesting. But, yeah, it wasn't very enlightening. It's just quite depressing <laughs> really yeah it's quite a depressing place really <laughs> yeah i i mean yeah I, I didn't sign up for an account funnily enough um yeah. I, and i so i i mean i'm i'm i've always sort of held my hands up and said i i'm fully trapped in a leftist bubble and i'm quite happy there i'm i'm okay with my 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 small group of uh socialist friends and uh you know I, i'm quite happy in that bubble but every now and then i do get the odd glimpse of outside of that bubble and it's just horrifying um sometimes on both sides but but uh yeah it's i didn't realize that the q thing had even come over t i mean i was aware that they were going to be a very very small fraction of british people who believed conspiracy theories or whatever and therefore fell into the QAnon thing but i hadn't realized it had really had any traction and certainly not in in the dance music scene i didn't realize that i didn't realize there were any dj's producers who were really the thing about into that, that. is that it's it can just mutate it can take any new piece of information and it can right. just suck it in and it can become part of the conspiracy so i think there was some crossover with anti-vax anti-mask anti-covid trains of thought i think there was some general distrust of authority and distrust of science that linked in with those q and on ideas yeah. particularly in the more particularly in the more ironically hippie parts of uh dance music culture the real, you know, yeah kind of yoga not saying people who do yoga. The, I'm trying to, you know, the kind of life coach, Ibiza hippie and yoga type end of dance music. Yeah. It's a terrible generalization, but I think there was some crossover. I'll say it the Psy trance scene. <laughs> yeah, I don't say that about a scene because I don't think it's a scene, but I think there are aspects no, no. Of, of that point of view, of anti authority kind of thing that chimed and resonated with these ridiculous QAnon ideas. And I think that was a little backdoor into dance music and i thought that was interesting but i yeah. couldn't really find it out because i'm not an investigative journalist i don't mean that no. you know what I mean? <laughs> just makes you feel a bit queasy it doesn't it's not very enlightening do you know what i mean yeah i mean so yeah it, it's an odd one because i i can kind of see i can i can draw a line from uh i guess people who say chemicals are bad not realizing that everything in this universe is made of chemicals a fucking apple is made of chemicals but i think you know people who say oh i won't eat anything with chemicals in you know and i think that sort of naivety of just really really basic primary school science um 
I I guess I could kind of see a link between that group of people, you know, which which are generally the more hippie yoga type Ibiza resort people. Um, I could see a link with that and the anti-vax movement. Absolutely. But the QAnon thing to me was an odd one because it was my understanding. And again, I've not looked into this, but my understanding of the QAnon movement was essentially there was a group that were never really named apart from a few random Hollywood celebrities. I think Tom Hanks was named amongst a few of the crazy leftist paedophiles, Satanist yeah. you know who would drink the blood of babies and do all of these things um but i think the list was mostly politicians and so they were believed to basically just eat babies or something and and also some kind of secret pedophile and blood sacrifice ring and donald trump was it uh, kind of fighting it surreptitiously somehow through his uh, presidency and yeah it sounds crazy but yeah, like I say, I think conspiracies like that, they just eat up new pieces of information and then re-churn them as part of the conspiracy. And I think because it's essentially at its heart, it's just about anti-authority and anti-reason and mm. just disregarding or rejecting things that previously we had faith in, like science. <laughs> Do you know mm. what I mean? I understand why, you know, a lot of people have, uh, have been let down by politics over the last couple of decades you know what i mean i do understand why they're going to move to the extreme but yeah and i think the communication of science has always been something that's that perhaps the mainstream media have not handled very well you know um where you know for example you know drinking alcohol is bad for you one day and then it's good for you the next day and then it's bad for you again the next day and 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 we do have this sort of it, it, it's an odd thing that actually that is good science that's good science at work and i think if you come from a scientific background you you, you understand that science is all about correcting itself it's all about yeah. d- discovering yeah. new information and then discovering more new information that actually then says no actually now this is wrong and then perhaps a year later discover more new information that goes actually we were right in the first time you know i think people find that frightening and i think a lot of people mm. have found the last couple of decades frightening, particularly with the increase in inf- information that we all have now on our phones. And so I think conspiracy theories that are big unifying theories are really comforting. Man, do you know what I mean? Because you can just, like I say, you can bang anything into it and it'll explain it. Do you know what I mean? I I'm not find doing that, work with yeah. conspiracy I think people are really uh, taking solace in, in conspiracy theories. It's I I've, I think and I think that's the bit that I've always struggled with is I've never really understood how people find solace in 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 just being told an answer without any evidence or without any explanation. It was just I don't know. I just, it, it it bothers me. It strikes me as an odd thing. And I don't I don't know how we as humans are able to sit there and go, oh, yeah, fair enough. OK. Oh, oh, I see. Yes, yeah, it's, it's left-wing politicians eating babies. That's okay. Move on. Do you know what I mean? It just <laughs> it doesn't happen like that. I think it's a slow erosion. I think it's a journey you take to get to that point. You know what I mean? And it's a journey that starts with little things. Yeah. 
I think it's a journey we've all been on for the last couple of decades while we've consistently, a lot of us have been let down by politics. Yeah. I think we've rejected a lot of things, not me personally, but I think a lot of people have rejected a lot of stuff that we used to kind of trust in, sometimes for very good reasons. And I think that leaves people open to exploitation from the fringes and, you know, open to accepting crazy ideas because it gives them something to hang on to. It's an explanation for why things are so awful, you know? Yeah. It's an explanation people can understand. Not everyone's a scientist right. like you, you know what I mean? You've got to understand, <laughs> most people don't really read many newspapers, don't really engage with a lot of issues in depth. Do you know what I mean? Not everyone yeah. does that. A lot of people walk around not engaging in depth with issues. They've not got time, man, you know, and that's not their way. Yeah. I think it's not. You know, it comes down, you know, I think if you're not engaging with things in depth, then a big conspiracy theory can be really comforting. Yeah, I, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> I, yeah, I just, I just struggle. I can't, I can't quite get my head around that corner. That People are still into religion, do you know what I mean? It's really comforting, isn't it? And it's a nice, big, unifying theory, explains everything. Don't worry, it's your, you know, it's, and there you go. You don't have to have an existential crisis. Yeah. See, I, again, I never understood that. And I remember very, very early age in in being told, you know, God created Earth, blah, 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 blah. I, I From, well, I assume it must have been first year at school. I must have been told that because that's where that's where religion entered my life. My parents were never religious. Um, and I remember being told, you know, God created everything. And my very first question was then well who created god and so it just it it wasn't an answer for me and and you know the the very first answer just came back to another question and it just didn't didn't solve it in my head um catholics got an answer for that one i can't remember what it is but they've got an answer for everything man who have the catholics oh right oh okay oh i'll ask them then yeah I'll ask the catholics i'm sure you know, <laughs> i'll ask the pope yeah they make a big long word you know that will explain exactly what it was right yeah <laughs> so uh, going back to the q and thing did you so you say you didn't find anything in in parlor was there was there a, a a scene i suppose that kind of merged the the two electronic music and conspiracy theory QAnon stuff or was it just individuals just falling for the conspiracy themselves yeah i didn't see it as a scene at all i saw a few people around the fringes there were some djs some promoters and they tended to be the kind of people who didn't believe in the pandemic at all who thought the pandemic was some kind of hoax or some kind of uh, larger plan to enslave us or something so right already clearly very open to pretty crazy fringe ideas yeah and also kind of wearing this anti-authoritarianism as a kind of badge of honor because they've seen the truth do you know what i mean yeah yeah and there's quite a lot of that but no it wasn't specific to one scene okay no just some random people random because i sometimes wonder if if maybe there is uh, and I guess that this comes back to the whole social media thing, doesn't it? Where we see, you know, we see people uh, start some Twitter beef with someone, and and uh, you know, where you can then go, oh, I see they've got an album out next week or something, you know, and and I wondered if maybe there was a, a correlation between 
uh, people posting conspiracy theory, 5G injection chips, Bill Gates, something or other pandemic. I wonder if there was a correlation between the people posting these things publicly and perhaps the people who had a release out the following week or something. And Terrible cynic. I can't believe you would be so cynical. <laughs> <laughs> I do apologise. I'm now going to start posting QAnon stuff and then do a tag on buy my book. Yeah, yeah, but but this is the thing: is is some people do genuinely. I guess you know it's it comes back again even further to as you mentioned with the serotonin burst that we get up from someone liking something. Well, well, if they can like something we've made, then all the better for it. And and if we can get those likes by any means necessary, then is sharing QAnon stuff the way to do it you know uh, I, I wonder how many people have actually just I, I guess I, what I'm really asking is I wonder how many people have have shared these conspiracy theories with malicious intent um, there are some people online who enjoy getting a reaction clearly yeah do you know what I mean? so yeah perhaps perhaps that because um, I think it's dopamine isn't it the, the thing that you get from uh, from someone liking your posts, I think that's the it's, same. It's yeah, it's either that or serotonin. It's it's one of those, which is the one which is triggered by food and cocaine and sex and stuff. Yeah, it's quite a strong uh, chemical in the brain, right? It's quite a strong reaction. Yeah, yeah, and also gambling. Uh, there's there's a big yeah. correlation between uh, the the gambling addiction and social media. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I I wish I had I, I wish I had a better memory because my memory sucks um but i was reading an article about a year ago or so there was some research that had been published that was looking at the similarities of uh brain function uh using social media and gambling and essentially it, it came down to and this is why we have infinite scroll on things like twitter and facebook and whatever because we can just keep scrolling and scrolling there is no end there is no bottom of the page um it just keeps going and it keeps rolling the dice because you know and that's why we continue to post is because we're we're looking for that next hit and so we're looking yeah. to to get our friends to go look at this look at this read this read this and like this like me like everything i do uh, and it's that validation as a human that we get is is uh, basically the same brain function of I'll put some money down on this. Maybe I can win this. Maybe I can win that. If I just put another coin in this machine and pull this handle, uh, you know, this one will really pay off, um, which is a very scary thing. It is. It's like a huge experiment has been enacted upon us in the last 15 years and we weren't prepared for it. And we, you know, we can see it has many great effects, but also there are some quite pernicious effects of social media. I do think, yeah, long term, I think the platforms do need to take a bit more responsibility. Yeah, yeah. and I don't know how they do that without government intervention, to be honest, because yeah, the I, government, you know, the government have got regulations about TV and radio. For God's sake, you can't say anything mm. on TV and radio. There are very clear lists, uh, guidelines about what you can and can't say and what you yeah, can and true. can't. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't see why social media companies are somehow above that simply because they're slightly different. It just means we have slightly different guidelines. Yeah. Guidelines are good. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's nothing wrong yeah. with having some 
guidelines. If you don't have guidelines, then people can just post Nazi stuff up on Facebook all the time. Yeah. You know, away with it or whatever, you know. Yeah, and it does seem responsibility for it, do they? Yeah. Yeah, and I guess uh, you know, writing a book, you, 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 you've, you've, there are things you can't do and can't say, and you know, segue, absolutely, yeah. Do you know what I mean? You can't fill a book full of racism. Yeah, there, there are laws against this kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for a yeah, reason. yeah, or, or or even the 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 uh, things like libel. I, I know that there are differences there as well, aren't there? In social media, you can, you know, I I I could make a post saying that you know david cameron fucks pigs um and that's somehow acceptable whereas if i was to go on bbc news and say well did you know david cameron fucks pigs um you know i think a few people would have something to say about that uh not least david cameron (laughs) i don't know how the law is different but i do know that yeah i mean my opinion it does need to change it seems to be that that there's an odd setup in that these uh platforms have such a huge influence yeah, on yeah. Facebook, you know took a part in the brexit vote for fuck's sake do you know what i mean yeah yeah um, yeah are we allowed to swear on this dom i think i've been quite good on not swearing so yeah much. of course no yeah say what you want do what but, you want clearly some kind of regulation intervention is needed do you know what i mean they're not I, I don't quite understand how they got away with it for so long it's the same with music it's the same with youtube and the way that they for years just posted you could put people's music on there and there was yeah. you know my music was up there i didn't get paid for it and there was no. nothing i could do about it except go on there every day find it and then contact them to take it off yeah imagine if the bbc did that imagine yeah. if you had to contact them to get them to take off something that they shouldn't have put up there in the first place yeah it's bizarre. yeah yeah it is an odd thing and it you know i don't know i i, I guess because the i think the the institutions really just ignored the internet as a whole didn't they as a as a method of communication it just wasn't seen as anything other than direct communication to individuals you know so you could email one person great that's not going to help me as this multinational corporate company um and it just seems odd that you know we're now what 35 yeah god are we 30 years i think as how long has the internet been around about 30 years i think 30 years but i think we all got into social media sometime in the noughties i think that's when yeah. most people kind of switched from reading books and newspapers to you know to going online a lot more yeah you know people at different times but i think in that period there was a large move away from a lot of stuff just to being online and just yeah. to look C- certainly the move from print media to digital media yeah was was very rapid and and that was sort of probably not much longer than 10 years ago i suppose um but i think i think i think by the time that happened the companies like facebook were already so vast that they already had you know the fingers in politicians pockets and and the regulation was never really going to happen and i don't know i don't know how we as a society combat that now because you know as as you just said you know the, the facebook had a huge hand in things like brexit um and I, you know they would have and could have only done that if the politicians let them do it 
And the only way the politicians are going to let them do it is if the politicians stand to gain from it. And I think the way it stands at the minute, the majority of politicians in every country, in every part of the world, stand to benefit more from social media than they stand to lose. And therefore, they will always be on the side of social media. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to do about it. I just know. I think, you know, I think more and more people are waking up to the fact that they are having a bad influence in lots of areas of our, in our life, in our personal mental health, but also in uh, the way politics and democracy works. I think inevitably, if you get a big enough grassroots reaction against that, politicians will have to act. And, you know, it will never be enough because it never is. But yeah. the, you know, it might be that you get some concessions. It's a journey, isn't it? Politics is always a journey. You never get what you want. It's a constant yeah, campaign. Yeah, I guess so. Do you know what I mean? Because the other side are going to be constantly fighting as well. You never get to win. You never get what you want. But you, you can hopefully push things in the right direction in your lifetime, I guess. Yeah. I hope so. I hope so. Uh, for our children's sakes. I genuinely hope so. Um, it's interesting. It, it, you know... Uh, I guess it, it ties in with with I think for for people like you and me who have somewhat of a platform to be able to inform our peers of things that are happening in the world. Um, I think I, I, I honestly do feel like sometimes we have a huge responsibility to be just very, very careful in in what we tell our peers and teach our peers and and um, you know, because that will inevitably come back to us at, at some point in the future. Um, but yeah, and I guess the start of that is is our usage of things like social media. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, you're right. It kind of does seem to be sucking the fun out of it slightly, but there is a responsibility, I think. I think you, yeah. you have to, I think you've got to act in the, you know, try and create the world you want. You have to kind of be the change you want to see, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you have to yeah. act in the way you want other people to act, I guess. Um yeah, like you say, it's a responsibility. Yeah, but it's the same in real life. Isn't it? We've got a responsibility how we interact with citizens in day to day life. There yeah. are, you know, there are rules and guidelines for acceptable behaviour. We all know what they are. Yeah, I, yeah, and actually, I wonder if uh, you know, actually, maybe our children's generation will be different in so many other ways that we perhaps don't envisage right now. For example, human interaction for our generation is meeting someone in the pub whereas human interaction for our children's generation is adding someone on snapchat you know it's uh you know so i i guess perhaps we can hope that their generation will maybe not be uh quite as trollish as our generation uh because they'll see that as normal society and uh and then they'll want to create a normal society react against their parents they won't want to be like us so they won't be squabbling online because they'll just see that as a really lame thing their parents do I'm yeah that's true to argue with people online about politics How yeah. Is that? yeah 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 i know i know when uh, uh i i uh, i played a gig in london uh, uh my first gig after my son was born uh about six weeks afterwards i think probably not even that and uh the promoter of the event sort of congratulated me on on my child being born and uh and he said he said something like uh oh that's going to be awesome for your son you know he'll have a super cool dad 
being a DJ producer and everything. And I was like, yeah, no, I think he'll see DJs and producers as just these lame old people things. You know, it's equivalent to your dad being in a band, a lame old band, you know. Uh, so, yeah. Band or something. Yeah. So uh, maybe the whole DJ producer thing will just be, you know, we're the last of them. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> that, my friend, I reckon is a wrap. Uh, honestly, thank you very much um, for being the guest on this podcast. It's a, a bit of an odd podcast uh, because there is no script. There is no start or end or anything. Uh, it's a fade in and fade out job. Uh, and the whole kind of aim of it is a fly on the wall. Um, so, yeah, honestly, thank you. And um, the longest chat I've had with anyone apart from my wife for years. Well, literally for a year. <laughs> well thank you um yeah no honestly really uh, good luck with the book as well uh i have really enjoyed what i've read so far albeit a very small amount um but honestly i'm quite excited to to get stuck into it um